the book of Job, the last chapter. But it fits this morning because of what we want to be talking about with this holiday season. Major, major focus is with kids. They make the season. They contribute in a tremendous way. Somebody had communicated with uh, some children, asking them some questions about uh, some questions about some very, very important life matters. And the one life matter that they chose to interview these children on was the questions about marriage and relationships with kids. And so here are some of the questions and answers that were asked by these. Um, whatever these officials trying to get some information, uh, how kids thought. How do you decide who to marry? Kristen responded, No person really decides before they grow up as to who they will marry. God decides it way beforehand. You get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> how can a stranger tell if two people are married? Derek, age 8, said, You can make a pretty good guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. What the question? What do you think your mom and dad have in common? Lori answered, "Both of them don't want any more kids." <laughs> when is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, when they are rich. Kurt, the law says you have to be 18 years, so I don't want to go around messing with something illegal. Another one: Is it better to be single or married? Anita, age nine. It is better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Ricky answered, how would you make a marriage work? Just keep telling your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. There is this fact that kids can kind of take serious situations and they can make those situations somewhat light. We experienced that just a few weeks back. When my mother passed away, when we got to the funeral service and then afterwards, we were gathered as a family. And even during those last few days when she was in hospice care and passing away, my dad lit up when some of the grandkids showed up, the little kids. It was like a different, a different piece came across him. My dad's never done this. We saw a totally different nature of my father at that moment. He's never been one that's really reached out to little kids. Little kids should be seen and never... Yeah. And so, he, he was, but those last days that I remember, the last hour that I was, my mom, that I was able to be there, and then my dad, when we were outside the room where my mother was, when... Um, when the great-grandkids, I should say, showed up, and there was two of them that were preschool, he just insisted they come to him. They weren't sure. They'd never got close to him once before, ever in their life. And he insisted they come close. And as soon as they got close, he did this bear hug that I've never seen him do with little kids. It's true. Kids make a difference, don't they? That's exactly what happens to Job. In Job 42, Job needs something, some levity in his life, something to just kind of bring out of this serious situation, something to, to help him come up out of this deep mourning. And in Job 42, one of the things God gives him is God gives him a bunch of kids. <laughs> now, you might think that's a bad thing. For Job, it's a real delight. Let me see if we can break down the chapter as we just kind of go through some of the sections. Let's start and set the scene, okay? In chapter 42, it opens up. Some of you didn't take the opportunity to be here when we last went through the section. So let me just make sure you're understanding the first few verses. What happens in Job 42 is based upon all that's been going by for the last weeks, months, whatever it is, Job had been attacked by Satan. 
Job had, had uh, or Satan had said, Job is only serving you, God, because you're giving him things. Take away the things and he'll no longer serve. So God said, okay, let's see if this is true of Job, God knowing Job better than Satan. And so Job was allowed to afflict and Job never knew this conversation went on. He never understands that a lot of this is Satan trying to get him to turn against God. But what happens is he's afflicted by all these losses of, of his business, his kids, his health. Everything just comes against him. And uh, the three friends show up. And they've been lifelong friends apparently for quite a while. They show up and they're there to comfort him. But what happens is they insist that Job has all these problems, not because Satan's trying to tempt him, but they say that you have all these problems and because Satan did tempt you sometime in the past and you gave in to the sin. And now this is discipline from the Lord. Job has been responding time and time again saying, no, it's not. I haven't given in to some sin. I don't have some secret thing in my life. And so this whole debate Debate goes on for multiple chapters of the book. But Job does have questions to God. He says, God, why am I suffering? I don't understand it. He, he never denies God. He never deserts the Lord. But he doubts whether this is fair of what's happening to him. Especially he look, looks around and he says, you know, Lord, do you really care for me anymore? Or he kind of wonders exactly, you know, is there something, something that, that, that you have turned against me? The wicked don't have the problems I have. And so he begins to doubt and he begins to question. And he says several times, as we looked at last week, Lord, if I could, I'd bring you into a court situation and I'd force you to give me answers. Well, chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, God comes to him and God rebukes him. God comes in a tornado. And we read already last week in these first few verses of chapter 40, God had said to him, he says to Job, he said, how dare you accuse me? Look at verse 7, chapter 40, where he makes the comment, he says, I'm not going to answer you, you're going to have to answer me. Verse 8 of chapter 40, God said, do you mean to be condemning me, to accusing me of doing something wrong? Chapter 9, he basically says, do you have the glory? Do you have the power? Is your arm as strong as God's that you, in, you insist I have to explain myself? And then verses 10 through 14, he basically says, you've questioned how I deal with wickedness. Do you think you could do a better job than I? And then God, in the midst of all that conversation, challenged Job. He's taken him on a whirlwind tour of the universe to show that Job really doesn't understand a whole lot of things about how the world operates. He takes him on a whirlwind tour of the zoo of creation. You don't even know where the animals are, are at half the time. You don't even understand how long they take to have, to have their offspring. You don't understand how to control some of the animals. And Job, you're, you're challenging me and you don't have all this knowledge yourself. And in the course of last week's uh, discussion, we talked about how in, in chapter 40 and 41, he looks at the two biggest creatures. And he says, look at Behemoth, look at Leviathan. You can't control these animals. You are afraid of these animals. But now you stand before me. And right before me, you're, you're not even trembling before me. And you're challenging me. You wouldn't even go near Leviathan. You'd stay away from that sleeping giant and let him go. But you dare challenge me? And so this conversation is really kind of pointed at Job. You're, you're bordering on some real arrogance and real pride. You haven't denied me. You haven't deserted. But you have really started showing me, we'd say today, you've given me some lip. Job's response is the beginning of chapter 42. 
And he says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? That's a question that God has asked that he's quoting. And then he answers, Therefore have I uttered in that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. And now he answer, He quotes God again. God, you had said, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. And now he's going to declare back. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so here he is, coming to a point where he's at the end of himself, and he basically says, God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry for what I have done, for my attitude, for my arrogance. It's kind of like this story, true story, of an individual known to the person who's writing this account. A mom, dad, three sons were personal friends. The oldest son was greatly gifted, both intellectually and musically, as a fine young scholar and a splendid violinist. Earlier in his high school years, the father, a medical doctor, had some trouble with the boy's spirit of submission. But we know what we do with our gifted children. We give them a little bit more room and cut them a little bit more slack. A proud streak soon accompanied the boy's independent spirit. Upon graduation from high school, the son was accepted into a prestigious school on the West Coast, a very expensive and excellent university known for its academics. The physician father paid the full tuition. The boy began his first year many miles from home. He continued his musicianship, playing violin in the school's orchestra, and he did well academically. But while he was there, he cultivated an even deeper independent spirit. Completing his freshman year, he returns home, bringing with him his proud and selfish spirit. It was not long before mom, dad, and the two younger brothers realized they had a problem on their hands. The conflicts intensified. His arrogant, stubborn, and mean-spirited attitude disrupted the family harmony. Late one afternoon, the father had had enough. He called the young man into his study, closed the door, pointed to a large leather chair, and said firmly, Sit down. He then delivered this speech the boy said he would never forget. Dad said, Everything you own is mine. I bought every stitch of clothing you wear and everything that hangs in your closet. Your car in the driveway is mine. I paid for it. The money in your pocket came from my account. Now, I want you to empty your pockets and your wallet on my desk. You leave everything that is mine in this house, and I want you to leave. Leave all your clothing. Give me the car keys. Leave your violin. I bought that too. Leave everything behind that you've been using, which I am now claiming as rightfully mine. You can keep the clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet, but that's it. There's the door. You can leave now. By the way, if you decide to change your attitude and come back into this house with a cooperative, submissive spirit, we will accept you and will welcome you back as a full part of this family, but not until then. I love you. I always will. But you are not the son I raised, and I'm not putting up with this any longer. The father told the commentator that the boy stood defiantly to his feet, put all his money and the keys on the desk, walked to the door, left the house without saying one word, not even goodbye. He proudly walked to the sidewalk out front, took a left, and went three blocks down the street. Then he stood there motionless with his hands in his empty pockets. He began to think through all that he would be facing as night was falling. The street life was nothing he knew about. He had no money, no prospects, no car, no job, no food, no phone, no sophomore year ahead of him. 
After his dad had taken everything he owned, the boy realized he had nothing left. When it was almost dark, he turned around, walked back home with his proud head hanging low, his heart truly repentant. He knocked on his own front door. His dad opened the door. Mom was standing right behind him. Next to them were the two younger brothers who were probably already thinking, who's going to get his room? (laughs) Then came the words, I'm sorry. I realize I need all of you. I love you. I've been wrong. I want you to forgive me for my attitude and my spirit. They reached out, embraced him, and welcomed him home. God bless that mom and dad who handled it in a good, proper way. And God bless the young man who had the right spirit of repentance. That is Job. Not quite as independent and as rebellious as that young man, but Job came to a point where Job says... Everything I lost was not mine anyway. It was all yours. That's chapter 42, 1 through 6. Then you have the next section of the book. As the story continues, in the next few verses, you have the story where, we're going to put it this way, Job had unlimited compassion for his accusers. It's an interesting read. Where all of a sudden... Job, after he repented and got his spirit right with the Lord, and it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, Bildad and Zophar. For you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have spoken of me the thing which is you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nathamite, they went and did according as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Whoa! Here's what you got. In chapter 4 to chapter 31, what we've already studied, there's been a debate between those three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job. Eight different speeches saying, Job, you have sinned, you have done something heinous, you need to repent. And every time they have been saying, we know how God works. God always punishes the wicked right away. That's what they claimed. And since you're being punished, you must be wicked. And so in their logic, Job had done something horribly wrong. To them, God was very harsh, very strict, very black and white. That's what we've already said. You understand all that. But what happens here is they get the shock of their life. If you were one of those three men, after you made this statement time and time again, and amen amen the speeches of the other two fellows, how would you respond when all of a sudden God says to you, my wrath is kindled against you? Because you've been saying all along, God's wrath is kindled against the wicked. And God says, no, no, I'm upset with you. When they have claimed all along that they knew exactly what was right, that they knew exactly how God operated, and God says, you have not spoken that which is right. You haven't told the truth. You haven't been accurate in what you're saying. These guys have got to have their sandals knocked off their feet. That they and their arrogance, they and their pride are all of a sudden being rebuked by God. And all of a sudden God says, you know what? You were wrong and Job was right. For the last umpteen these chapters, they've been saying, Job, you're wrong, we're right. Job, you're wrong, we're right. Eight different times. And now God says, uh-uh, Job was right, you were wrong. I do have a question about this, by the way. 
The question that comes to my mind is that, you know, they say Job was wrong, and now God says he's right. How is it that Job is right in what he said when just we read the last few verses, he had to repent of what he had said? In fact, in chapter 40, when Job was in the middle of his conversation with God, go back to chapter 40, where Job said in verse 3, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but why I will not answer any more. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. I'm not going to say another word. Now, here God says, but Job, what he did say was right. How is it that what Job said was right, But God says, but Job said what I said, some of it wasn't right, and I had to repent. How does that work? Well, let's talk about it for just a second. Job appears to be more accurate in what he says about God than these other three have been. He has been having a higher view of God. He was right when he has been saying all along, I am not guilty of a secret sin, like they've been saying. So he was right in that regard. He, uh, he was right when he spoke about there's a heavenly defender. They didn't talk about that, but he did. He was right when he says there's a future resurrection. He's the only one that's mentioned it in all those chapters. He was right when he says that God is patient with the wicked, that he doesn't always punish them right away, where the other three said God always punishes wickedness immediately. So Job was right about that in all those regards. Job alone has said, we don't understand God in the way that he always works. The others, they said, we understand God. We know God. We have them all figured out. Job was right in this regard. Job was right in that he's the only one that, never, that prayed during the process of the debate. The other three never prayed for him, as we see recorded, but he's prayed several times. He's right in that he's very transparent with God, very open with the Lord, and saying, here's my battles, here's my struggles. He's right in that when he was challenged, he quickly repented. So is he saying when God says in verse 7, 8, 9, when he says what Job said of me is right, some commentators say that this is an exceptional phrase in the grammar. Instead of meaning what he spoke of me, he should be rendering what he spoke to me. They haven't convinced me that that's the way that this exceptional piece of grammar works, but that's what some conclude. The point is that whatever Job, what God is referring to, Job was right in several different matters. Job was accurate, more accurate than those other two men, uh, three men, excuse me. And so God says, Job's right, you were wrong. I'm mad at you, but not at Job. God has said that, you know, all through this whole phase, you need to do something now. You need to go to Job and ask him to pray for you. That had to just really unsettle them. Because they're saying that Job has, has walked away from the Lord. All their accusations have gone out the window. And so they are told, go and ask Job to make a sacrifice for you. They are told that what they need to bring is seven bulls, seven, uh, seven of the rams. That's a big sacrifice for that time period. But they're told to bring this. And they're told to go to the very man that they accused of sin and let him be their mediator. Does it remind you of any other righteous, religious zealots in the Bible who accused someone of grievous sins, and then they were told, you have to go back and he's the one that's your mediator? Do you see anybody else in Scripture treated like that? Yes, no? Who? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, to who did they accuse of grievous sins? 
Jesus Christ. In fact, they said, you are in league with Beelzebub. And they made all these accusations against Jesus. And they wanted him to be, de- to be put to death. We have no king but Caesar. And they turned on him, just like those three did. They turned on Job. Crowds turned on Jesus. And Jesus ends up dying, burying, and resurrecting. And when he comes back from the grave and he ascends up into heaven, what are his disciples saying to those very same ones that had previously condemned him and accused them? We read in Acts 4, when they are hauled before court, that Peter stands up and makes these comments, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you accused, whom you said was in league with the devil, whom God raised from the dead, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby you must be saved. And they were told that they need to ask Christ to be their Savior. Did any of them respond? Yes or no? He's got a 50-50 chance. Did any of them call upon Christ to become their Savior? Yes, a few did. In fact, we know, of, we know of some that later on that the books of Acts talks about how some of the Pharisees turned to Christ. We even know of the most famous Pharisee who eventually turns to Christ. Saul, the Apostle Paul. There are some who responded. There are some who, even today, they accuse Christ of all kinds of things, but the message from heaven is still the same. You need Christ. You need to call upon Jesus because there is none other name given amongst men. None other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. You can't say, I'm going to heaven because I'm an American. That name is not the name that saves. You can't say, I'm going to heaven because I'm a Baptist. That's not the name that saves. You can't say, I'm going to heaven because of whatever religious denomination or because I'm of such and such a family. You can't use anybody else's name. You have to turn to Jesus Christ. The God-man appointed to be the mediator. And by the way, now where we live in this age, this time period, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. It's not another saint. It's not another church. It's not a deed of baptism. The only way to get into heaven is through Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father, but he's the only one. Well, those men that Paul, uh, Peter talked to, some of them responded. When the individuals were told by, by the apostles, some repented like you and I need to repent and ask Christ to be your Savior. But what about you? You've heard about Christ You've probably picked up gospel literature. Have you called upon Christ to be your Savior? Have you turned to Him and asked Him personally to become your one and only person that you trust in to get to heaven? No longer trusting in self, no longer trusting in anybody else, but He and He alone. You need to do that. You need to accept that free gift of salvation and make it your own or you aren't going to get into heaven. God speaks these words and talks to the three friends and says, you need to go to the mediator at that time. You need to go to Job. And you need to ask him to forgive you. And so Job's friends listened. We already read the text that Job personally prayed for them. That's the part that strikes me really, really just 
what a commendable trait on Job's part. That Job would pray for these fellows. That he would pray for them despite the fact that these three people have treated him so poorly in the past. That they have condemned him. They have criticized him. That he says, give me good counsel. And then they rip him apart. It's amazing that he does this. Read the text. Look at verse 10. His captivity is not turned until after he prays for them. So that means while they come to him, nothing has changed. He has no hope of the illness going away. He has no hope of, of uh, the return of any of his possessions. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He is still in pain. He is still in agony. He's still in the ash heap. He is still broke. He is still rejected by everybody else. But he has heard God tell those men, we think, he has heard God tell those men to come to him and ask them, ask him to pray for them to be forgiven of their attitude towards Job. And Job prays for them. Even though he doesn't feel good, he prays for them. Even though he doesn't have any hope of being successfully rich like them, he prays for them. Even though they have treated him like dirt, he prays for them. The reason he's able to do it is because he has just been fully assured of God's forgiveness for his arrogance, for his pride, for his attitude of self-will and self-determination. And God has forgiven him, so he is able to forgive them. Can we just make some observations that should be as clear as crystal to you already right now? But let's make this truism. The best way to overcome some hurt that you feel that somebody has made in your life, somebody has said something, somebody has done something, they didn't say something, they didn't do something for you, but it causes you great angst. And whenever you think of them or get around them or get into some situation, it bothers you what they did or did not do. It bothers you what they said or did not say. The best way to get over that hurt is simply to do this. Start praying for them. Pray for them to be blessed of God. Pray for them to be used of God. Forgiving others. Forgiving others is essential to your own spiritual walk and obtaining blessings from the Lord. In this text, he is not blessed. The captivity is not turned away, if we want to put it that way, until after he has prayed for the friends in verse 10. You and I need to remember that if we refuse to forgive others, we are struggling and we are forfeiting some of our own blessings that could come from God. The strength to forgive others, the strength to become gracious to somebody who has deeply hurt you, it comes from this. Remembering you have been forgiven by the grace of God. You don't deserve what forgiveness. I don't deserve the forgiveness. But we remind ourselves that scripture has stated repeatedly in two of the passages, uh, uh, twice in in the New Testament, he makes this idea that you and I need to be careful that we don't give place to the devil. We need to be careful we don't grieve the Holy Spirit. In context, it's talking about bitterness, wrath, anger, talking about getting upset where you scream, you yell, talking about evil speaking, saying something rude or something tearing down another person should be put away with all malice. If you don't do that, you grieve the Holy Spirit, you are giving place to the devil. And he goes on, he says, be ye kind one to another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. So you and I, in order to be able to have the right attitude towards people who have hurt us, people who have disappointed us, 
You need to remind yourself, God forgave me when I didn't deserve it. I need to forgive others. We go back to Job. We make another observation. Failure to forgive others will result in forfeiting God's blessings. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he's preaching to the crowds? If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. What blessings have you forfeited by harboring and holding on to some anger? What blessings have you given up in answers to prayer because you refuse to forgive a sibling, a cousin, a co-worker who hurt you, who disappointed you, who didn't come through when you thought they should come through. The Bible is so clear that Job was gracious towards those who were critical of him. What an example for you and me. What an example for us to just say we need to have that same type of graciousness. Do you? Have you? Review your conversation this past week. Review your attitude towards others this past week. Have you displayed grace to those individuals? Now, Job is in a situation where he's not only gracious towards those three men, but there's another group of people that show up. That people that have, could have, we could conclude, deeply disappointed him. Follow along in the text. What happens, we read a little bit more, that in this text there's, there's a group of people that show up in verse 11. There came unto him also all his brethren, all his sisters, all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house. That means nothing to us unless we go back a few chapters. Go back to chapter 19. And I want you to catch Job's concern, his comments about his brothers, his sisters, and his acquaintances. You've got to refresh your memory. Go back to Job 19. Job 19, Job is in the middle of some of those battles, those struggles. God, do you really care? God, what's going on? And he makes this comment in Job 19, verse 11. God also hath kindled his wrath against me. He counted me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops came together and raised up their way against me, and they encamped round about my tabernacle. Then he makes this statement about God moving in his relatives' hearts. He hath put my brethren far from me. Mine acquaintances are verily estranged from me. My kinfolk have failed. My familiar close friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house, that is those his servants, and my maids, they count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my, with my mouth. Still no response. My breath is even strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children, they despise me. I arose and they spake against me. All my close inward friends abhor me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. And now we come to chapter 42. In chapter 42, his relatives show up. Has he won the lottery? I mean, isn't that when relatives show up in mass? There's no lottery won. Look at the text. 
It doesn't say that, that Job's all of a sudden, everything has, has turned yet. Yes, it's implying now. It says that the captivity has turned. The Lord gave him twice as much. Then came there all the brethren, the sisters, and all those individuals. And so they give him gifts. It's interesting what happens. Okay? Those individuals, did they, did they come because they now were you know, no longer afraid of lightning striking them because they were close to Job? Whatever is happening, they have heard the tale that his captivity is turning. That brings us to this last section. The last section of the book, Job was ultimately commended for his allegiance. I remind you of the whole text that in chapter 1 and 2, Satan has accused him. The only, way, the only reason he serves you is you give him things. Take away all the things. He'll no longer serve you. He will curse you. Job has never cursed the Lord. He has remained loyal. Satan's attacks have crashed and burned. Satan has been proven wrong. Now God says to, about Job in this section, he calls him the first time since chapter 2. He calls him my servant. The first time, and he says it four times in verses 7 and 8. God is verbally commending Job and verbally saying he has remained faithful. He has remained faithful. Yes, he and I had to have a conversation about his attitude. And we took care of that. But on outward, when he's dealing with people, my servant Job has remained faithful. And so God has turned the captivity. What does that exactly mean? How does that phrase captivity, what does it refer to? Does it refer to his health being restored? By the end of the chapter, it's true. Does it refer to the fact that his fortune is restored? By the end of the chapter, that's true. Does it refer to his social standing being restored? By the end of the chapter, that's true. Does it refer to his family being restored? By the end of the chapter, that's true. Exactly what happens in, in the time frame, we don't know. But we know that Job is vindicated. That publicly it's very clear that God has restored him to the place of prominence that he had once before. Why? Well, Job doesn't understand why everything was taken away other than the will of the Lord. But Job has remained faithful. And God is commending him that he has been the servant all the way through his trials. No matter what his health breakings and problems were, he was God's servant. No matter what his friends say, said, he was still God's servant. No matter what he lost, he was still God's servant. Is that true of you? No matter what difficulties, do you still serve the Lord? No matter what health issues, do you still serve the Lord? Would God say, you are my faithful servant, no matter what people say, no matter what your friends do or don't do, no matter how you're treated, in a good sense or in a bad way, do you remain loyal as a servant of God? Where God would say, yep, 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 you did it, you did it, you were loyal. And God would say, my servant has been faithful, and basically say, well done, thou good, and faithful servant. There's a commendation that comes out of this text. And then God multiplies that. Oh, here comes the family. Here comes the relatives. They hear that his health now has been restored, if that's the first part of that captivity. And so they had stayed away, but now they come back. And when the friends and relatives come back, they each give him a piece of money and an earring of gold. Multiple commentators will conclude, I don't know the validity of it, but they suggest that maybe this was the rebuilding of his finances. That God used the monies that the relatives had given to him as a get well gift, as a welcome back gift. But the relatives return. 
And we know that Job, in his grace, he welcomes them into having a meal with them. Isn't it interesting that there are people this day that if they're offended with a family member, they won't even be in the same house. They won't even sit down and eat with them because they disappointed me. They will hold that grudge and harbor that grudge. Job did not do that, though he was agonizing over the desertion of all of his family in chapter 19. Now when they want to come back, he is gracious enough to say, come in and have dinner with me. He is restored in the physical blessings. The physical blessings of his finances, in this case, which in that time period was really important to them. I mean, it's important to us today. But watch how God blessed him. Where it says in verse 12, The Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. And it lists what he has now. And if you make a comparison to chapter 1, it lists the exact same animals. In chapter 1, it says that he had 7,000 of the sheep. Now God gives him 14,000. In chapter 1, it talks about 3,000 camels that he had that he lost. Now gives him, God gives him 6,000 camels. In chapter 1, it talks about the oxen. That the oxen were 500, now God gives him 1,000. Because he had remained faithful, he is getting this abundant blessing of the Lord in this life, which is commendable. He, he talks about even the donkeys, the asses. How many there were back in chapter 1? It's doubled. Then it talks about his family. And it tells us that his children are restored. He had seven sons and three daughters at this time period. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, do you remember how many children he had in chapter 1? Okay, he had seven sons and three daughters. Okay, and so back we, we have that, that idea that some will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, God doubled everything at the end of the story, but God didn't double the kids. Yes, he did. The kids are doubled. True? When you lose property, when you lose animals, they're gone. If your child passes away, does your child still live? Well, beyond your heart. Your child's living where if they're born again? They're in heaven. Are you going to be reunited with your child? Yes. So when we lose a loved one who is with the Lord, we haven't really lost them. We're just not together for... A while. You Pennsylvania Dutch people say a while a whole lot. Okay? Right? Let's, let's study the Bible a while. Do you want some refill of your coffee a while? Yeah. Can I help you out a while? Now, this is a true a while. Okay? We're separated from loved ones for just a while. We are going to be reunited with them. So Job didn't really lose all the ten kids from before. They are just moved to a different place, and he'll see them later. I'm not minimizing the lost, but I'm putting it in this big picture. Did God, therefore, double his family? Yes, he really did. Okay, In that sense that the children were doubled, he's now got ten that he's going to see later on, and God doubles his, his family. Now remember, Job's been through an awful lot. Job has raised kids who we read about in chapter 1. They have their own homes. So Job's parenting years are basically over, and he gets 10 more. Why are you laughing? 
<laughs> so he's getting a big family, okay, that comes at this point of his life. Okay, and so there is, it's, it's a wonderful story in the fact that his children, he gets these 10 new kids, and you got to admit, man of days, would that give you new life? You're supposed to say yes. Okay. <laughs> 10 children would revitalize you. It would definitely make you feel younger. You would have, <laughs> none of you are convinced, okay. But in his case, yeah, and then what's interesting is this text does something it never does elsewhere in scriptures. It highlights the daughters, and it gives you the names of the daughters. One's called uh, Makeup and Perfume, okay, is her name literally. Um, the, uh, you know, they're given names that, that designate that they were gals apparently of extraordinary beauty. It says something else about the daughters if you look at the text. It says that, and doesn't say this typically, it says that the girls also received their portion of his inheritance. Typically, inheritances went to, yeah, the firstborn, but in the, even, even then it go, usually broken down to what gender? The boys. Okay. And so this is an unusual case. Why? We don't know why it's there. Other than, apparently, his daughters were very, very well-known and recognizable. And so the passage that is, the, the part that I think is exciting is where he talks about after that, it says in verse 16, Job lived and gives the years and he saw his sons, his sons' sons, even four generations. And so he's seeing great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids. He's living a long time. His family is just growing and his Christmas list is expanding. And it's a wonderful experience that all of a sudden there's, you know, we can add to this without being risque in any form. His health is restored. His health has to be restored. How do I know that? After he prayed in the journey of the captivity, well, he's healthy enough to, to sire a whole bunch of kids. When before he talked about how, you know, there was nothing left in his body. He was, he was dying. But now he's able to not only sire the children, but he's, help, he's there to help raise the kids. Okay? So his stamina has been returned. His strength has been returned. And it goes on, it says that, that he's living a long life. And if he lives in that time period, that's pre-Abraham, that's close to the time period in the time of, in the years of Noah, which is a, a possible um, thought that after Noah, he, li- he was born, and so they knew about the flood, which he has referred to a couple times, that even in that first early generations after the flood, living into being a couple hundred years old would not be unusual. Because the, you know, the time span, the lifespan would drop within the few generations after that. But it says he's died being full of years. Here's what some postulate. That he was about 70 when all the tragedy struck because of the age of the kids and all that. And having 10 kids and they're old enough to be on their own. So he's about 70. And if God doubled his years, God gave him another 140 years. And therefore he was around 210 years old. Don't know. We don't know the first figure where it comes from, but that's what you'll read and that's what you'll see. Fact is, full of years, a good long life. And so the story ends in this really positive way about Job and in his life. And it comes down to the story concludes with this idea that God is rewarding Job for his allegiance, for his faithfulness. Through all the trials and the troubles that he's gone through, never knowing why they came, Satan wanted to stumble him, to trip him up, but he remained faithful. He was loyal to God. So at the very end, he is rewarded. 
He is privileged to be rewarded in this lifetime. He's not the only one. He's not unique in this sense. The New Testament promises the same thing when it reads in James, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, trials, struggles. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. And he talks about that idea of enduring the endurance of Job in this same book. These rewards will come. That's the point. They will come in time. Maybe, like in Job's case, it was in this lifetime. Because he lived long enough. He lived a lot longer than you and I would. But the fact is, God promises rewards for faithfulness. That's the book. God promises rewards for faithfulness. God doesn't say that it's going to always be peaches and cream in this life, but there are rewards for remaining faithful to the Lord. If you are loyal, if you are faithful, if you remain constant with the Lord through all your difficulties, your trials, your troubles, in your ups and your downs, in your losses, in your gains, if you are loyal, God promises to reward your allegiance If it doesn't happen in this life, it certainly will happen in the next. He is going to reward you. Here, we we are all about making some sacrifices to have something that's really neat. We will drive down there. We will put aside other stuff. We will say, Shady Maple is worth not eating for two days. (laughs) But when I get down there, it's worth it. We, we will do these kind of things. We will stand in line to put our, our bodies through G-gravity forces doing roller coasters. People will stand in line for hours for rides. Just to be able to say, I had that 30-minute experience. A 30-second experience, excuse me. Oh, 30 minutes, that would be horrible. <laughs> so you ask these people who stand in line Was it worth it? And most of them will say, yeah, it was worth it. We we do these types of things. Black Friday shopping. Get up at 2 in the morning. Stand at a store that's still closed for three more hours to shop. I told somebody yesterday, I had a tooth pulled this week. I'd gladly get teeth pulled before going shopping, okay, on Black Friday. So people will stand there. And they'll be there. And then they'll, they'll handle the crowd and the rush into the store to say we saved five bucks though I spent ten. It's worth it. We, we will do this. We hear about a Chick-fil-A opening up. <laughs> Chick-fil-A opens up now. I think they're stopping it now. But for up to this point, if you got there early enough and put your name in, the first hundred people could camp out in the parking lot for 24 hours. I I can think of a whole lot better places. But you could be out there on the cement, on the tar, enduring whatever the weather is. Oh, and every so often they'd come up on the roof of the the store and they'll shoot, you know, those air guns with T-shirts that say, the cows say, eat more, or chickens, yeah, eat more, yeah, okay. They'll throw off the cups and the mugs. And then if you stay there the 24 hours and you're in that first hundred, you get a year's worth of coupons. One, one meal a week. You get 52 coupons. 
And people will say, it was so worth it. Well, we do this. We will, this holiday season, we will put up with all kinds of traffic to get to Philadelphia Airport. We will get, you know, pay whatever we need to pay to park to greet our loved one coming off the plane. And we will say, it's worth it. The reward is worth it. We will say, hey, some of you have said, the pain is so bad, the surgery was worth it. Because now I can walk again. Okay? Some have, done, have said that, right? Amen. Because, yeah, the benefit. Ladies, you can't see your feet for weeks. <laughs> you can't get a good position, rest. Here's the big question. Were they worth it? You see, we, we look at things in life and we say, the battle, the struggle, the difficulty, it's all worth the reward in the end. And those rewards in the end usually are temporary. And God says to us, listen, if you are faithful, when you see me, I will make it worth your while. You just need to be faithful. You just need to be like a Job that endured all difficulties. And what is the phrase that we talk about Job? The what of Job? The patience of Job. The word is literally the endurance of Job. That's what this book is about. Tell me from a human perspective. Next time when we return to the book, and I need to return for one more time, we need to see it from God's perspective. But from our perspective looking up this morning, what we have is faithfulness. Faithfulness is rewarded. Faithfulness is rewarded. Reading, praying will be rewarded. Dealing with your own uh, difficult habits and and challenges will be rewarded. Having self-control will be rewarded. Enduring, being a witness, even when people give it, will be rewarded. It's going to be worth it all. Folk, it's... How do we not close with this song? That it will be worth it all one day. If you're here this morning and you say, but I don't know for sure I'm going to heaven, then our staff's headed to that door right now. And they will gladly show you from the Bible how you can be confident, 100% assured you are on your way to heaven. While we sing this song of encouragement one to another and encourage through just music, you feel free to get up and go and talk to one of those people there to make sure you're on your way to heaven. Those of you who are born again and